Good evening and welcome to week four of Rare Book School 1999 summer session. The last lecture in this series will be me at this podium tomorrow night at six o'clock. This evening we want to begin with an interesting presentation. Here is Calvin Otto, a local book collector, retired industrialist, serious collector of the history of the book. I take pleasure this evening in presenting. If someone would hold this up, maybe yeah, this to the Book Arts Press. This is a 1920 vintage paper mold from the Joseph Batchelor and Son Mill in England. Noted also for the fact that Joseph Batchelor was the maker of all of William Morris's paper. Uh, I owned the mill during the 70s, and it was converted in 1942-43 to produce mats. Material like this, the hand mold, was then given off to Bartram Green, and most of them disappeared. It's interesting during the war that the Joseph Bachelor and Son was owned by Lord Beaverbrook, who many of you may recall was the, uh, I think he was chairman or lord of, of the production under Churchill, and he made it a point to confiscate all the metal fences he could find around England for the war effort. But when we came into the business with him in 1972, the one at the mill was still there. Uh, for some reason, he forgot it. That's a, and these particular molds, which he's carrying around, is a double hand-laid paper. It's called a bachelor hand mold on its countermark with a Britannia on its mark, watermark. And they were found, if you could believe this, as chicken coop wires because they got so scarce during the war that very few of them remained intact. This one has a little bit of paper on it, and I think it still survived from being used maybe by Bartram Green. And what we've also prepared for a handout after the speech from John is a little packet containing an article that John did on Bachelor for his upcoming publication, which you perhaps will talk about, a little bit about the mill, a bit about the mold, some pictures about, <coughs> excuse my cold, of Bachelor in 1900 and Bachelor in 1986 when we closed and an actual sample of paper made on a mold just like that from 1920. So I take pleasure in presenting this to the Book Arts Press and hope it'll be useful over the years for educational purposes. I first met Cal Otto in 1991 when I came down to give a lecture at the University of Virginia before I began my appointment here. And he has been giving things to the Book Arts Press ever since. This is one of a great many objects over the years that he has found for us, although uh, this is an unusually, an unusually interesting one, as you can imagine, and we have many reasons to be grateful to him. Our speaker this evening is John Bidwell, who is now Master Curator of Printed Books and Bindings at the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York City, who presents a revisionist history of the development of the papermaking machine. John Bidwell. Thank you, Terry. Revisionist history is a dirty job but somebody has got to do it. 
As much as we like to think that heroes can change the course of history, at times we have our doubts and begin to question their motivations and achievements. Last year, we celebrated the bicentennial of the papermaking machine, commonly known as the Fourdrenier. Why do we give it that name, so difficult to pronounce, but so easy to remember? Surely, it would be more accurate to call it La Machine Robert, after Nicolas-Louis Robert, who in 1798 first conceived the idea of mechanizing the sheet-forming motions of the Vatman, Kutcher, and Lair. And yet, Robert never succeeded in building a model that could make satisfactory paper on a mass production basis. Instead, perhaps we should honor the engineering genius Brian Donkin, who adapted and developed Robert's ideas to build the first commercially feasible machine with a larger capacity, a wider web, and a better shaking mechanism, among other important improvements. These improvements cost a fortune. That is why we recognize the contributions of the financiers Henry and Celie Ferdrinier, who paid for the experiments of Brian Donkin and employed him to construct machines for them to sell at a profit and in hopes of recovering their investment. They were not inventors, they were investors, experts at raising money and spending it to develop new technology in a form suitable for commercial exploitation. Investors have to take risks. They have to cope with bottlenecks, delays, cost overruns, rival patents, patent infringements, and other pitfalls on the way between the machine shop and the marketplace. In their case, the costs were so great and the returns were so small that they defaulted on their debts and went bankrupt just as they were beginning to prove the potential of mechanized paper manufacture. In a more romantic era, we would say that they were martyrs of the machine, sacrificing their great wealth to nurture a priceless innovation, a catalyst of economic growth, a force for industrialization with profound implications for the price of paper, the cost of printing, and the availability of cheap books and prints in a newly emerging consumer society. By default, we have admitted the Fodriniers to the pantheon of inventors, along with Singer, Maytag, Firestone, just to name a few whose names live on through the products they created or promoted. However, the time has come to set the record straight and explain precisely why the Fodriniers have been given credit for this invention. In the revisionist spirit, I will attribute their downfall not so much to the financial strain of research and development as to financial temptations posed by new technology, compounded by reckless ambition and errant speculation. That is what I mean by industrial hubris. After their business failed, their creditors discovered their fraudulent accounting practices and seized the rights to the invention, although Henry remained the nominal head of the firm. Nevertheless, most of his customers knew that he was in disgrace and refused to deal with him, 
shirking their obligations to the firm while still buying from Brian Duncan, who continued to manufacture the machine. The Ferdiniers' problems greatly influenced the diffusion of papermaking technology, both at home and abroad. Just for example, I will explain why cylinder machines were far more prevalent in America than in England, where they were invented but were secretly suppressed with the consent of the inventor, John Dickinson, who did not want to compete with the Ferdriniers, having learned from their example. This state of affairs continued until 1837, when Henry's friends in Parliament stage-managed an inquiry which whitewashed his reputation so artfully that even now, histories of papermaking overlook his legal and financial tribulations. However, we still have to keep them in mind when we look for bibliographical evidence and paper and consider its impact on the economics of book production. When we notice changes in the appearance and performance of paper, we must remember that it was a staple commodity, an article for sale subject to the whims of the market, the state of the trade, and the flux of the economy. We can detect commercial incentives and constraints in the purity of fiber and the consistency of the sheet, its size, weight, color, texture, and printability. For your inspection, I will present some of the economic factors evident in the earliest papers manufactured by the machine. First, some background. The family firm started in 1719 when Henry and Seeley's grandfather emigrated to England and set up shop in London as an engraver and stationer. His descendants built up an immensely lucrative business as wholesale stationers, running two separate firms, a retail store in Charing Cross and a large wholesale establishment at Lombard Street and then on Sherborne Lane. The Ferdriniers on Lombard Street recorded profits of more than 14,000 pounds in two years running, 1800 and 1801. They sold rags to papermakers, blank books and office supplies to merchants, bulk quantities of printing paper to publishers, and an assortment of writing papers to retail customers. Like many successful merchants, they provided informal banking services on the side, using their surplus capital to discount or endorse bills of their colleagues in trade. This was such an important part of their business that some of their partners were assigned to manage these informal banking activities, known as the cash department. Of all those involved in the English paper trade at this time, they were probably the best qualified to finance and promote the paper-making machine. The convoluted history of this invention does not have to be repeated here, except to explain the enormous investment it entailed. As early as 1796, Nicolas Louis Robert was experimenting with a crude, hand-cranked paper-making apparatus while employed in the Assun paper mill owned by Leger Didot. Robert and Didot began to dispute the rights to the discovery soon after Robert applied for a patent in 1798. Neither could raise the capital needed to build a commercially viable machine. At one point, Robert sold his rights to Didot, who commissioned his brother-in-law, John Gamble, to patent 
the device in England, where they hope to meet up with skilled technicians and savvy investors. Gamble made the acquaintance of the brothers Ferdrenier, who immediately perceived the potential of the project and agreed to advance all the necessary funds in return for part of the profits. Leger Didot later came to England and took a third share of the patent. John Gamble owned another third, and the remainder belonged to various members of the Ferdrinier firm. This consortium oversaw the work of Brian Duncan, who had to construct an efficient and reliable machine on the basis of the French patent and a working model, which Gamble brought over for their examination. Robert's ideas had to be revised and elaborated from top to bottom before satisfactory paper could be made. The English technicians conceived a better way for the pulp to flow evenly onto the moving wire web. They improved the shaking mechanism. They invented movable leather decals to adjust the width of various papers. And they replaced the wooden couching roller with a more reliable couching mechanism and a rotating wheel so that the paper could be wound up automatically. They installed endless felts to carry the paper through extra sets of press rollers. The more they added to the machine, the more carefully they had to regulate the speed of various parts so as not to injure the fragile web of paper. Most importantly, they enlarged the wire web so they could make extra large papers up to 54 inches wide and at speeds from 25 to 36 feet per minute. In 1807, a Fourdrenier operating at peak efficiency could make as much paper in a day as hand workers could produce in five to seven fats. Duncan and his mechanics finally vanquished the technical problems posed by the original invention, but at an enormous cost. By 1807, the Ferdrinier's investment in research machinery and manufacturing facilities had consumed so much of their private funds and capital and trade that they petitioned Parliament for an extension of their patent. Duncan testified before a parliamentary committee about their various expenditures, amounting to more than 31,000 pounds. They paid for a specially equipped workshop in Bermondsey, where Duncan's technicians devised the precision metalwork needed for the smooth operation of the machines. They erected or enlarged three paper mills, all expressly designed to provide sufficient power raw materials, and workspace for mass production papermaking. In addition to their flagship enterprises, the Frogmore and Two Waters Mills, they owned a majority interest in the St. Neots Mill, where they intended to install not one, but two paper machines to make it the largest mill in England. One paper mill would have been enough to display the potential of the Four Drenier, but they wanted more than that. They plan not only to sell this new technology to papermakers, but also to exploit it for themselves, to combine their vastly enhanced production facilities with their extensive distribution network to build the foremost vertically integrated wholesale stationary business in the nation. Not even their great wealth could support these grandiose ambitions. Even though the House of Commons did consent to prolong their monopoly so they could recoup some of their expenses. Reluctantly, 
they admitted other partners in the firm to attract additional capital. As the toll of debt mounted, some partners withdrew and had to be replaced by others who prudently disavowed the obligations of their predecessors. Their retiring partners were either paid off or induced to leave some money in the firm for which they demanded sureties of various kinds. The family business changed hands frequently, even before it had to bear these financial burdens. I will summarize the more significant arrivals and departures to show what happened to the patent when the patentees began to lose the confidence of investors. Here, it gets complicated. But I cannot spare you the fine print in deeds and depositions, because this is where I dig up the dirt in the Ferdrinier affair. For 40 years, the branch on Lombard Street had been closely associated with the Bloxham family, a wealthy clan of stationers prominent in the book trade and in financial circles. William Bloxham owned half of the firm in 1790, when he joined with Henry Ferdrinier the Elder, Henry Ferdrinier the Younger, and Charles Ferdrinier in a partnership for the standard term of 14 years. Henry the Elder retired by 1800, leaving an investment of 2,000 pounds that he was either unwilling or unable to recover before he died. When the partnership expired in 1803, Charles Ferdrinier and William Bloxham withdrew in favor of Henry and Seeley, who henceforth traded under their own names. Like Henry the Elder, William Bloxham left a large sum of money in the firm, including a loan of 16,000 pounds, for which he received not only 5% interest, but also a 1,000 pound annuity. Bloxham retired more gracefully than Gamble and Didot, who had to relinquish their rights to the invention when they could not pay their share of the investment. The brothers bought out, forced out, or eased out every one of their partners in the patent and the family firm. In 1803, Henry and Seeley took sole control of their three major concerns, the workshop in Bermondsey, the paper mills, and the wholesale stationery business, which they moved to Sherborne Lane. They soon discovered that they lacked the means to run all these far-flung enterprises, yet they still wished to manage them on their own. By seeking alliances outside the book trade or within the family, they sought to inject new capital into the firm without having to consort with colleagues who would want to interfere. First, they admitted a silent partner in the person of Matthew Togood, who had banking connections but no experience in the paper trade. Then, they invited their brother Charles to rejoin the firm at a hefty price in the company of Togut's son, although Henry and Seeley continued to manage the patent concern as their own private venture. By 1809, their financial position was deteriorating rapidly, though few noticed their predicament because they were still able to impress others with their personal wealth the vast resources of the Togut family, and the great value of the patent. The elder Togut appears to have departed amicably in that month after arranging to take part of the St. Neots mill in return for the money he had advanced in 1807. Creditors lost confidence in the firm after Togut left. And after Henry fell out with his brother Seeley, Seeley 
had become entangled in the schemes of a rogue industrialist, James Bartholomew O'Sullivan, who had ordered two, maybe three machines for his family's paper mills in Ireland. With his Irish charm and a dose of blarney, he conned the brothers so skillfully that they loaned him money and almost made him a partner. Even though he had gone bankrupt more than once, and his defalcations had been publicly announced in the Dublin Gazette. Nevertheless, he persuaded them to lend large sums from the house at Sherborne Lane, in effect advancing him the cash he needed to pay for the machines. Oh, that was bad enough. But even worse, Seeley allowed him to draw between 10,000 and 12,000 pounds in bills on the retail outlet at Charing Cross, without telling his brother Henry. Seeley may have been conspiring with O'Sullivan to divert funds for a paper-making venture in Ireland. When Henry learned of their intrigues, he forced Seeley to surrender his share in the patent. Or according to a more indulgent interpretation of the affair, Seeley left voluntarily to seek his fortune with O'Sullivan. Whatever his misdeeds, Seeley no longer figures in the business of the firm except as a charity case, nor in Henry's claims for recognition and compensation except as a vestige of the patent. If he followed O'Sullivan, he did not get very far, for the creditors later learned that he was in extreme distress and totally destitute. In a rare moment of compassion, they gave him the right to run a machine free of charge, but even so, he never regained his place in the paper-making trade. After his defection, the house at Sherborne Lane had to be totally reorganized. In November 1809, Henry signed deeds establishing the firm of Ferdrinier Togood Hunt and Company, composed of four active and two silent partners, William Abbott and Francis Morse. Like the Togoods, Abbott and Morse were newcomers to the trade, but they knew enough to protect their investment by securing an encumbrance on the patent rights and on the workshop at Bermondsey. If the other partners failed to pay their debts, Abbott and Morse could take over the patent concern, which was then producing about 3,500 pounds a year. The Ferdriniers derived most of their patent income from licensing fees. They knew that they would price themselves out of the market if they tried to recoup their investment by sales alone. That is, if they charged their customers a lump sum based on the unit cost of the machines. Even if they could suddenly produce a large number of machines, which they couldn't, they could never set a purchase price high enough to offset their total outlay on research and development, somewhere between 30 and 60,000 pounds. Even the most adventurous members of the trade would refuse to buy machines priced on that basis. Instead, the patentees paired their customers' startup expenses to a bare minimum and planned for the greater part of their revenue to come from annual licensing fees. They proposed to sell the machinery at the construction cost of £1,250 and then to collect an annual royalty from £100 to £600, depending on the output of each machine. The payment period might last as long as 12 years. But after they defaulted on their debts, and forfeited the patent, their customers suspended payment 
while waiting the outcome of their legal disputes and financial problems. The assignees were not able to collect patent dues between 1810 and 1816 and were still trying to sue delinquent debtors as late as 1827. A depression in 1810 hastened the Ferdriniers' descent into bankruptcy. Prices fell, unemployment rose, and businesses large and small collapsed when a boom during the previous year ended with a crisis in overseas trade. Signs of distress first appeared in the firm's financial division, where it was most vulnerable to adverse economic developments. The Verdrinier brothers had been drawing on the firm to defray their expenses at Bermondsey and had been accepting the bills of Leger Guideau without notifying the partners in charge of the cash department. William Abbott objected to the loans they had negotiated for O'Sullivan, who was obviously in trouble. The elder Togood placated Abbott by securing O'Sullivan's bills through his family's bank. But apparently, Seeley had entrusted even more bills to O'Sullivan without the knowledge of Henry, who had already used them as collateral for a mortgage on the licensing fees of one of their customers. Let me run that by you again. Uh, Henry needed to mortgage part of his patent income and tried to secure the mortgage with the money O'Sullivan owed the family firm. Sure enough, the customer failed, the licensing fees dried up, and the mortgagee tried to collect the collateral. Then to his dismay, Henry discovered that the funds he had set aside for this purpose had been embezzled by Seeley. The mortgagee, William Hollingsworth, and other creditors began clamoring for payment after O'Sullivan's bills were publicly protested in early 1810 and after he was declared bankrupt that summer. Henry's creditors pursued him so vindictively that he once had to dash out of the back door of his warehouse to hide from officers of the law. He and his brother may even have been arrested if later testimony can be believed. Henry withdrew from the firm just before bankruptcy proceedings began in November 1810. His debts, therefore, did not involve the house at Sherborne Lane, which then belonged to Abbott, Morse, Hunt, Matthew Togood Jr., and Charles Ferdrinier. Charles dropped out of the partnership when his brothers seemed about to fail, and then rejoined again after the worst had passed. An insolvent debtor could not declare bankruptcy voluntarily at that time. Henry appears to have arranged with the solicitor George Abbott to strike a docket against him and his brother, a necessary first step before their case could come before the bankruptcy commissioners. Although some accused George Abbott of conspiring with William Abbott, perhaps they were related, George Abbott was probably following the instructions of Henry Ferdrinier, who was seeking protection against prosecution for debt. The commissioners ascertained that the debtors had committed an act of bankruptcy, which in this case could range anywhere from avoidance of creditors to a fraudulent conveyance of assets. The commissioners then summoned a meeting of the creditors who came forward to prove their debts and ordered the bankrupts to surrender their property and such records as would show the extent of the damage and the prospects of repayment. The creditors elected William Abbott and William Bloxham to be the assignees responsible for administering the bankrupt's estate, in which capacity they could retain the profitable ventures and sell off the rest 
to satisfy some of the outstanding claims. The assignees estimated the brothers' debts at nearly 40,000 pounds, but could not be sure of this figure since the firm's accounts could not be trusted. Convincing evidence emerged that the brothers or their accountant had made unauthorized transfers between the firm's ledgers and their private ledgers. The assignees paid a dividend of six pence on the pound by liquidating such assets as the workshop at Bermondsey, purchased by Brian Donkin. Although Donkin could now make machines independently, the right to grant licenses and collect royalties still belonged to the patentees. But the Ferdriniers had relinquished the patent in such dubious circumstances that no one knew to whom it rightfully belonged. The controversy over this most valuable part of the debtor's estate divided the creditors into three hostile factions. One, Abbott and Morse staked their claim on the encumbrance of the patent they obtained with the partnership deeds of November 1809. Abbott resigned as an assignee in 1816 to defend his interests in court. Two, Matthew Togood Sr. maintained that he deserved a share of the royalties as an indemnity against the brothers' failure to pay an annuity secured by the St. Neot's mill. Three, after Bloxham died in 1814, the creditors elected his son, Henry Bloxham, and William Hollingsworth to be assignees. These two argued that the patent should have devolved on the creditors along with the rest of the bankrupt's estate. They disputed Abbott's and Morse's claims on the grounds that the brothers had ceded the patent to their partners in the full knowledge of their impending bankruptcy and in a, an attempt to preserve some of their property. If Abbott and Morse colluded with the bankrupts to evade their legal obligations, then the deeds of November 1809 could be overturned as a fraudulent conveyance of assets properly belonging to the creditors, a subterfuge tantamount to an act of bankruptcy. The assignees imputed similar motives to Togood who remained suspiciously close to the Ferdrinier firm after taking over St. Neots. Togood counterattacked with accusations that Bloxham had exacted an usurious rate of interest on his loans. These disputes dragged on until 1825, inflicting massive legal fees on all concerned. The Ferdrinier's bankruptcy overshadowed attempts to mechanize paper mills both in England and America. Until the patent expired in 1822, papermakers who wished to invest in this promising new technology could not be sure where to begin, whom to contact, how much to pay. The feuding creditors sometimes tried to compromise by placing the licensing fees in an escrow account pending the outcome of litigation, but even that failed to clarify the situation. Henry was thought to be the agent for some of the creditors and to control the licensing of machines, but suspicions of misconduct diminished his authority. Beleaguered, disappointed, and disgraced, he guarded the patent all the more jealously while its future was in doubt, since it was his last link with the family firm. This confused state of affairs may have impeded the diffusion of machine technology overseas. 30 paper machines 
were operating in England by 1816, but it was by no means clear whether foreigners could buy or even see one while the creditors were disputing the patent rights. A Swiss inventor gained admittance to a Fourdrenier mill in 1817, but a Prussian emissary reported back to his superiors in Berlin that the utmost secrecy is observed with regard to these machines, and I had no opportunity of inspecting one of them. Donkin did not export a Fourdrenier to France until the patent expired. Americans proposed to buy a machine and even helped to sell it in their country, but found it difficult to deal with Henry, a very ignorant and narrow-souled man. He had every right to be suspicious and resentful, as it turned out, for the Americans gave up on him and turned instead to John Dickinson, whose cylinder machine was smaller, cheaper, and easier to build. By gaining admittance to his mill, both at the front door and the back door, they stole the secret of his machine and successfully introduced it to America. But that is another story. What concerns us here is the mysterious fate of the cylinder machine in England where it might have competed against the Fourdrenier, especially in the earlier years when many papermakers would have preferred a cheaper alternative. To this day, historians have been hard-pressed to explain why the cylinder was not as adopted as eagerly in Britain as in America, and why Dickinson never challenged the Assignee's monopoly on the sale of papermaking machines. One early commentator supposed that the cylinder was too complicated to achieve the widespread acceptance, apparently unaware that it was comparatively easy to build and maintain. At a loss for a better reason, the paper historian D.C. Coleman suggested that papermakers preferred the Ferdrenier and that Dickinson himself had turned against his invention to install Ferdrenier's in his own mills. Actually, British papermakers had no choice in the matter, and Dickinson did not consider one machine better than the other, but preferred to have both in his widely dispersed, fully diversified manufacturing concern. The assignees made this possible by giving him their machine at a discount price in return for a promise to keep his machine under wraps and off the market. As far as I can tell, he held up his part of the bargain. That is why cylinders were not available in England and why cylinder papers were available only from a single source. The assignees were well advised to fear Dickinson's machine, which although it ran at a slower speed, could manufacture good or better products with a smaller capital investment. In fact, cylinders are still in use today to make board and fine artist papers, such as Wattman, Reeve, and Arsh. At that time, papermakers cared not so much about lower output as about lower costs, an important factor when having to spend large amounts on new technology just to stay in business. Although simpler in principle, the cylinder caused as many costly delays and vexing problems as the Ferdrenier. Dickinson experimented with various suction devices, a different coaching mechanism, and an improved design of the cylinder so that it could turn freely and remain watertight without rubbing against the sides of the vat. The cylinder did not perform very well when making thick papers, an exasperating defect he tried to correct by using suction pumps, running the machine at a slower speed, filling the vat to a higher level, and building cylinders of a larger diameter. 
His patent specifications of 1809 claim that a cylinder of 15 inches in diameter equipped with suction pumps could make 20-pound medium at the rate of 36 feet per minute. In all 10 patents, Chronicle had struggled to improve and exploit his invention over a period of more than 50 years. While paying machinists to build and rebuild the cylinder, Dickinson bought and enlarged two paper mills, the Apsley Mill to house Ferdreniers and the Nash Mill to run two cylinders side by side. Like the Ferdreniers, he planned for a physical plant large enough to support the increased output of mass production paper making, but unlike them, he paid for his ventures in the paper trade by raising money in the book trade. The King's printer, Andrew Strong, a family friend, advanced 20,000 pounds in return for a mortgage on the Apsley Mill and an 1,800-pound annuity, which Dickinson had to pay until he could pay back the loan. In 1811, Dickinson borrowed additional money in return for a second annuity, also secured by a mortgage. While Strong received a handsome 9% return on his investments, Dickinson had to pay nearly 2,500 pounds a year in regular installments. Nevertheless, this arrangement seemed practical and possible, since the creditor was helping to settle their account by buying vast quantities of machine paper for printing Bibles, statutes, periodicals, and other publications. Dickinson found another major customer and more financial support by forming alliances with a Longman family, one of the great publishing dynasties in England. Just before he purchased Apsley, he established the firm of Longman and Dickinson in partnership with George Longman, brother of Thomas Norton Longman, current head of the publishing concern. After George Longman died, his position in the firm was taken by his nephew Charles Longman, who resided at the Nash Mill by the 1830s. Thomas Norton Longman loaned 20,000 pounds to Dickinson, who repaid the loan and then charged Charles Longman the same amount as his price of admission to the firm. As the business grew, so did Charles Longman's contributions to the working capital it required. By 1840, his share had risen to 36,000 pounds out of a total capitalization of 96,000 pounds, not including the value of the paper mills in the firm's offices at Old Bailey, which were Dickinson's personal property, albeit heavily mortgaged. Longman and Dickinson sold machine paper to the Longman Publishing House for Reese's Cyclopedia, the Gifford edition of Ben Johnson's works, and John Pinkerton's general collection of the best and most interesting voyages and travels, all large and lucrative multi-volume publications. Dickinson depended on the goodwill and regular orders of Strong and the Longmans to stay in business. He was still paying Strong the full value of both annuities as late as 1820. In 1821, he borrowed even more money from Strong to buy out his loutish younger brother, whose impertinent position in the firm had been purchased by their mother. Relations with his creditors were severely strained by the book trade crisis of 1826 when he lost an immense sum of money in the resounding chain reaction bankruptcy of Hearst and Robinson, London agents of the publisher Archibald Constable, who also failed, as did the printers Ballantyne and Company and the author Sir Walter Scott. Strong was very violent after hearing that Dickinson had negotiated bills with the bankrupts 
and complained bitterly about his conduct in a conference with one of the Longmans. Apparently, this was not the first time the papermaker had provoked the printer, who on this occasion drew up a list of grievances which Miss, Mrs. Dickinson described as being as long as my arm. Nevertheless, Strawn forgave this latest affront, even though the culprit was so deeply involved that he was still one of Scott's most prominent creditors in 1830. By that time, he began to repay the principal of his debts, and he finally succeeded in lifting these encumbrances on his property a few years after Strawn died in 1831. Before then, however, Dickinson tested his creditors' forbearance more than once. In these precarious circumstances, Dickinson did not want to contract any additional debts to finance the marketing and manufacturing of cylinders. Likewise, the Ferdrinier assignees did not relish the prospect of having to compete against the cylinder, which could easily undersell its larger rival on the open market. Compact and durable, the cylinder mechanism was not only simple to build, but also different in design, so it could not be considered an infringement of their patent. And as their legal costs were rising fast, they too ran short of funds. Therefore, they protected their investment by negotiating a truce with Dickinson, who agreed to suppress the cylinder for the right to use their machines on advantageous terms. Possibly, he obtained a rebate or an exemption from royalties, for he is never listed among the earliest licensees, although he acquired his first Fourdrenier in 1812. In turn, the contract restricted the exploitation of his invention so stringently that he had to pay 100 pounds a year merely for permission to move his cylinders from his Apsley mill to his Nash mill. The exact terms of the contract remained a tightly held secret, but the assignees admitted that they were colluding with Dickinson when they announced that he was using one of their machines and that he had relinquished the right of selling his invention. Legal and financial obligations constricted the diffusion of cylinder technology just as they inhibited the sale of the larger machines. Papermakers could not buy Dickinson's device because he had borrowed money almost as recklessly as the Fordrinners. The inventor of the cylinder overcame the same business risks that ruined the investors in the Fordrinier. He adopted similar methods to finance his experiments, purchase paper mills, and appease his creditors, who pressed him hard for repayment, but not so hard as to drive him out of business. He constructed a stronger edifice of credit, often shaken but never shattered by the expense of technological development. Among other advantages, he could temporize with creditors who knew his business, understood his problems, and bought his products. Although he could spend as lavishly as his rivals, he did not challenge them, preferring to exploit his invention in his own manufacturing ventures rather than in licensing arrangements with a trade. His agreement not to sell his machine gave him valuable concessions and spared him the expense of running a workshop like Bermondsey, but it also obliged him to conceal his achievements 
which have not been properly appreciated even now. Here concludes my revisionist history with a vindication of John Dickinson and an indictment of Henry and Celie for Drenier. Posterity has treated the bankrupt brothers more indulgently than they deserve because they or their friends tampered with the historical record and because historians have neglected to question records that agree with their preconceived opinions. In my opinion, the most suspect of these records is the report from the Select Committee on Ferdrinier's patent issued by the House of Commons in 1837 when it was debating whether to grant a pension or a cash reward to Henry Ferdrinier for his services to the nation. Even the title is a sham, employing a singular possessive in the phrase for Drenier's patent, instead of a plural for the other brother and the other patentees, such as Gamble and Didot, whose contributions are deliberately overlooked in this account. The report doesn't mention Robert and says not a word about the other papermaking machine, which had already proved its potential in America. Henry's friends enlisted a number of scientific and cultural celebrities of the day to testify on his behalf, including Mark Isambard Brunel, who could not contain his enthusiasm for one of the most splendid inventions of the age. The publisher Charles Knight saluted Henry and congratulated himself for the improving tracts he was printing on the steam presses of the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge. I am sure, said Knight, that nothing like an extensive diffusion of such works as I publish, which I think do in some degree advance the civilization of the country, could have been carried on without this invention with anything like the certainty and cheapness which they are carried on at present. Henry's friends commended him and his machine so fulsomely that the public began to think of him as the inventor over the protests of John Gamble, who tried to, in vain, to set the record straight. Now, in technological development, although actually he was spending more money on mills than on machines. On the opposite extreme are the historians of the book, who would dismiss the Select Committee report as a brazen display of technological determinism. How typical, how fatuous, how banal it was of Charles Knight to attribute the reading revolution to machine paper and printing when he should have discerned the causes in increased income, literacy, and leisure, galvanized by better schooling, evangelical movements, and radical politics. This approach may be more politically correct, but does not get very far here in rare book school, where we've been trying to understand books as a means of visual communication, communicating in different ways, depending on how they were designed and distributed. Paper is a vital ingredient of books, worth studying if we need bibliographical evidence to tell us who printed them, when, and where or if we are seeking economic data to explain why some members of the book trade succeeded and why others failed. When we study books from this point of view, we need to know why certain papers reached the market at a certain time, 
we need to know why Foudrenier papers were balled up in litigation and why cylinder papers were caught up in a secret pact between the inventors and his rivals. Even a perfectly free market favors innovations more at some times than at others. Depending on its capacity, the elasticity of demand, the flow of capital, the cost of labor, and other economic variables. To understand the market, we need to know more about the business, especially the legal and financial side of this ancient craft when it became a big business at the beginning of the industrial era. Thank you. surrounded by an interesting exhibition, Two for a Nickel, Ephemera of Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. You may want to take a look at it on your way out or later during your residence in Charlottesville or just plain later. It will be up until the end of October. Otherwise, there are uh, keepsakes which are in the process of being handed out as we speak, which include a small sample of paper made on a, on a uh, paper mold similar to the one that Calado has just given us. We do not guarantee that it was made on this mold. And we hope that you will all join the speaker for a reception in the first floor Alderman Staff Lounge that follows immediately after the final person in this room has their keepsake. So. I must say you're observing discipline beautifully, and if you just stay where you are for the next 30 seconds or so, then uh, we will avoid a riot. 